everybody. It's Rich Conwisher. I'm so glad that you have joined us together for our continuing journey in confronting Christianity. As you might tell from my background, I'm in a different room. I'm actually not just in a different room. I'm in a different state today. Greetings from the Wasatch Mountains of the great state of Utah. And um, for the first time since COVID has happened, I've gotten to come and to be with my parents. Haven't seen them since Christmas and so got to come out in the middle part of this week to come and to spend some time with them. So grateful for their hospitality and for the fact that they have blazing fast Wi-Fi so that we could still do the uh, the webinar today. I wanna welcome back Rebecca McLaughlin. So glad to have you with us for volume two of our installment. Last week, um, we had a great conversation about does really religion, you know, is it the source of kind of all the problems and evil in the world? And we talked about how the, the science and the evidence really point towards a different reaction. We got a great topic today for everybody. But before we get to that topic, Rebecca, why don't you just kind of, let's personalize this a little bit. Tell us a little bit about your fam. My family, yeah. Um, we are, I'm the only person in my family who doesn't have an American accent and who isn't an American citizen. In my kind of immediate family that lives in my house here, uh, uh -huh. I'm married to a guy called Brian who is from Oklahoma. Um, we met in the UK. People always ask when I say he's from Oklahoma, they say, oh, how did you meet? I'm like, well, he, sometimes people from Oklahoma move to other places. Uh, he was studying in the UK and we met in grad school there. Um, it, it's it's really hard to find a good evangelical man in England, like I'm telling you. So, you, know, <laughs> you had to export, import in order to yeah, make that Yeah, and, and funnily enough, when, when Brian um, got a, a scholarship to, to come over to the UK, he sort of spent some time processing with the Lord that clearly he wasn't going to meet anyone he might marry in, in England. And so, you know, this was a commitment to several years where he wouldn't be dating. And at a time when all his Oklahoma buddies were getting married and having kids in their, you know, very early 20s, um, right. he he thought, yeah, this is not going to happen. And then, you know, God had other plans. So we have lived in, in Cambridge, Massachusetts for the last 12 years. Mm -hmm. We have three children. Uh, Miranda is 10, Eliza is eight, and Luke is two and a bit. Oh my goodness, that's fantastic. What a challenging season to to be a mum, I believe is, is the, at least the Americanized butchered well version done. of what, what you call <laughs> your brother. Yes. Right? And so what a, what a what Can you tell me just one thing, I mean, I know we're off script here, one thing you've learned about kind of being a parent and going through uh, this season with COVID? Yeah, I think we had a, a powerful moment right at the beginning of, of quarantine up here when everyone was still sort of finding their feet as to what on earth was going on. I know, I know we're all still kind of finding our feet now, but at least we, we have some sense of, uh, of, of normalcy after several months mm -hmm. of the world being very strange. And I remember, you know, it was Friday or Thursday evening, we heard that the girls' school was, was shutting down um, and church was shutting down. Mm -hmm. And so suddenly we, you know, we were suddenly this kind of little mini island having been very connected to other people, um, both believers and unbelievers in, in the different kinds of communities we are part of. And we, we have a, a, a family practice of doing family Bible times in the evening, which are very unglamorous. It's my, either my husband playing the guitar really badly or me playing the piano really badly. Um, <laughs> and the other night, Brian was leading Bible time while I was away and he told me afterwards that halfway through halfway through the little song he'd played um he turned around and said to Luke our two-year-old Luke can you stop shouting and his big sister said 
Daddy, he's singing. <laughs> he was trying, this poor little guy, he was, a, he was on the wrong verse and he was completely out of tune and it was basically shouting, but he was trying to sing. Anyway, very messy it's in our house when we have family Bible time. Very Psalm 100. I mean, you got to make that joyful noise. You got to shout for joy. It was a, a noise yeah. that brought him joy at least. <laughs> Let everything um, that breathes praise the Lord, even if it's out of tune. <laughs> right. Yeah. So I remember this, this moment right at the, the beginning of quarantine when we were gathered in the girl's room singing together. And I thought, hey, right now, this is church. Mm. And I don't want to, I mean, I, I, all sorts of things go into a healthy local church and it's not just me and my husband and our three little kids, but, but right in that moment, when we, we actually couldn't meet in person with, with other people, and we were still figuring out you know, how, how to do any of that. Um, I thought, you know, right now this is church and things which a month ago would have been completely unthinkable. Mm-hmm. And my brother's, my brother's actually a, um, a professional immunologist based in the UK. And I remember him, saying back in January, I think, that this was probably going to be the worst thing that's ever happened in the world. And I thought, oh, come on. I'm just like, you know, my big brother, he's, he's exaggerating, like what? <laughs> so things which completely, we would not have imagined a month ago. And it was just a reminder that anything could happen in our world. The things that we think are normal and stable and you know unchangeable are absolutely not. We don't know when an earthquake will happen or when war will break out or when a global pandemic will hit. We just don't know. Right. And remembering in that moment, A, you know, I, I actually have a worshiping community right here in my house, messy as it is. And B, I, I might be needing to disciple my kids through a period of mass, like very severe unrest, the like of which I've n- no one in my lifetime has experienced. And then thinking, yes, and, and that is precisely the environment in, in which Christianity was born and it's precisely the kind of environment in which many Christians today live and so it's actually weird that we are so comfortable it, it's not weird when the world turns upside down around us exactly that the, the norm for the forging of God's story and his people in Israel and um, in the beginnings in the New Testament was the chaos and the uncertainty and uh, hatred and jealousy and uh, high taxes and all kinds of different things contextually. But well, you, you segue to the church and we're gonna talk about <clears throat> the church today a great deal with, you know, with kind of the topic of doesn't, doesn't Christianity or doesn't the church crush diversity? And to kind of enter into this topic, um, many people kind of assume that the values uh, and the practices of diversity and pluralism are kind of a modern invention or they're from progressive ideals. And um, uh, is that really true? Is that where this stuff came from? Just before I answer that, I want to share something that um, a lecturer of mine in, in Bible college would say, and I don't think it was original to him, but he would say, as we look back over church history, that anytime there is a heresy, what we must do is we say, we must distinguish between this and that. And this and that can, at, at distance, look similar. And so it's important for us Christians to sort of distinguish between this and that. Yep. And both of those words that you just used, Rick, so diversity and pluralism mm-hmm. can mean very different things to different people. So yeah. I'm going to spend just a moment here kind of de- yeah. defining what I, what I would even mean by those. Um, so the, the word pluralism to start with, uh, some people take that word to mean um, essentially relativism, like the idea that there is no objective universal truth when it comes to, to religious questions uh, and that really 
um, we need to recognize that people from all sorts of different religious traditions are bringing their own truth and, and maybe together we'll, we'll kind of figure out what, what the real truth is. Some people use plural, pluralism to mean that. Others which, is use the, which is our topic next week. So we're going to double click on that for anybody. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So other, others would use pluralism to mean um, having environments where people of, of different beliefs can can interact with each other and engage mm -hmm. with each other and have real conversations. It's sort of very different, very mm -hmm. different idea. And one, you know, I'd say that the, the former Christianity absolutely stands against and the latter Christianity very much um, encourages us to do. And then this word diversity, it's almost like there's become a sort of umbrella term that covers everything from a difference of racial heritage to difference of sexual lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And those are very different kinds of difference. Yeah. And I think our focus today is on um, racial, cultural, ethnic diversity. Mm -hmm. And in that respect, I would say that, that rather than that kind of diversity being a sort of modern progressive value that we Christians are just sort of running to catch up with, maybe, or fighting against, that it's actually at heart a Christian value mm -hmm. that, that comes to us from, from the scriptures, um, starting at the very beginning when God creates um, humanity, male and female, in his image. And that's all humans. It's not just one particular racial or ethnic group. Right. Um, then charting sort of through the, the Old Testament scriptures. And at first you think, well, wait a minute, didn't God choose just one ethnic people, Israel, um, to work out his purposes? And I was pondering on this earlier as I was doing a piece of writing that actually uh, in, in the same breath that God makes promises to Israel, he says that, it, 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 that all peoples of the earth, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed through Abraham. And we see from the very beginning, like we see um, Hagar, an Egyptian woman mm -hmm. having... It, um, Abraham's first child, albeit against God's purposes, and then God, God making these amazing promises to her. And then we see you know, um, Joseph marrying an Egyptian woman in Egypt and um, his two uh, sort of Egyptian Israelite sons um, being kind of part of the 12 tribes of Israel from the very first there. We see when God's people come out of Egypt that a mixed multitude comes up with them. Um, and it's very interesting, even if, if you look at the, the genealogies, um, particularly I think in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus, you see people from outside of Israel being specifically mentioned and woven in, like, um, like Rahab, Ruth. the, the mm -hmm. Canaanite, or, or, or Ruth the Moabite. And so we've had this sort of ethnically mixed multitude even through, throughout the, the Old Testament scriptures. And then when we come to the New Testament, Jesus breaks through every racial and cultural barrier of his day right. in ways that are completely, that are shocking, were shocking to his first hearers and that we often can't hear because our racial and cultural barriers are different. Can you give so us a couple you and I, examples of those? Sorry, Rich, Can on. you give us a couple examples of those? Yeah, so, so you and I hear the word Samaritan and we immediately think good. <laughs> if anybody has ever heard that word, <laughs> their, their word association is good. Yeah. For the people to whom Jesus was, was speaking when he told the parable of the good Samaritan, they were the hated sort of racial and religious group. They were the, I mean, there are so many modern categories we, we could put put them into um but you know if you think of of what would be the the big kind of racial or cultural barriers of of, of our day or of, of the world in which you individually as you're listening to this screw up you'd be able to fill in those, those blanks then maybe will be different for us and what's what's especially interesting about jesus's parable of the good samaritan is that he actually makes the 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 good samaritan who should have been the bad guy right the moral hero 
-hmm. It's not even like, hey, hey, Jews, you need to be really nice to Samaritans as a sort of act of generosity. It was like, hey, you know, my Jewish heroes, I'm telling a story where the Samaritan is the moral hero and these these Jewish guys are the, the people who are completely failing to get, get in touch with God's, God's picture. And I love as well, I mean, obviously Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well, mm. where not only is she a Samaritan, and Jews would, would like travel long distances to avoid going through Samaritan territories, let alone go chit-chat with Samaritans. So she's a Samaritan, she's a woman, he's a Jewish rabbi, he shouldn't be talking to a woman, and she's a woman with a very sexually mixed up past. And, and she says to him, like, why are you asking me for a drink? Like, haven't you, like, don't you get it? I'm like a Samaritan. I'm literally the last person you, Jewish rabbi, should be speaking to. And in fact, he is precisely the person who Jesus was speaking to and had this massively explosive theological conversation with. So we see that in Jesus's own life and ministry. And then, and then we see Jesus after his death and resurrection telling his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations. Mm. And we see it on the day of Pentecost in, in Acts chapter 2 as the Spirit is poured out on the apostles to preach. Um, we see people uh, gathered in Jerusalem who hear them from all sorts of countries, uh, including Egypt and Libya and um, you know, what would be modern, in modern day terms that are Iran and Iraq. Um, and we hear that 3,000 were added to the number of the, the disciples that, that day. So from literally day one of the church, right. this has been a multiracial, multicultural, multiethnic community. And even with different language, I mean, the, the spirit is poured out and, and Peter speaking in different, uh, the apostles are speaking in different languages. Um, so there, there's all this kind of racial and cultural diversity there. Um, I'm going to start like, I, I could go on, about this for a long time but i'm going to wrap up soon rich don't worry too much um we then see in in acts chapter eight interesting it's sort of sandwiched between when we first hear about the uh, man who goes on to become the apostle paul who at the time is persecuting the church um between the first mention of saul paul and his his sort of train wreck conversion on the road to damascus we see philip being specifically prompted by the spirit to go to one particular man who is an Ethiopian eunuch traveling um, by chariot, who, who's um, you know, a sort of senior civil servant um, right. in, in the Ethiopian court. And this guy, interestingly, is um, already, it seems, a, a, a kind of follower of, of God because he's reading from the book of Isaiah. Or Isaiah, Americans say Isaiah, don't they? We say Isaiah. It, it is, it's, it's close I mean. enough. Your version actually sounds cooler. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so this Ethiopian eunuch sitting there reading from Isaiah, Isaiah and, and Philip explains to him what this passage means. Mm -hmm. And immediately the Ethiopian eunuch is like, oh, wait, there's some water over there. Any reason I can't be baptized? And he just goes, I mean, it's like this uh, extraordinary of eagerness and, and an interesting compare and contrast actually with, with Paul uh, in terms of their reactions. So, so we see the first um, kind of individual African Christian we know of, whose mm -hmm. story is um, told there, and, and interestingly, a very educated guy, and also interestingly, a guy who um, you know was a, against his his will um, castrated as a, as a kid. I mean, that was right. what a, a eunuch meant. So, all sorts of interesting things happening there, um, and we see you know throughout the the book of Acts, the gospel going kind of out and out and out to more and more different kinds of people. 
And then, of course, we see, um, you know, the Apostle Paul writing to, to churches um, in, in various different kind of ethnic contexts uh, and talking about how um, in Christ there is neither barbarian, Scythian, slave, nor free. And, and, and that kind of language, again, we're like, well, who are barbarians and Scythians? That means nothing to us. Right. But in our modern day terms, it would be like him, you know, in America saying in Christ there is neither a European American nor African American. There is neither Hispanic American nor Native American. There is neither Asian American um, nor a fill in, you know, fill in the blank. Any kind of racial or cultural category you would think of, because Christ is all and is in all. Mm -hmm. And then finally, we sort of see the final movement of this in the Book of Revelation, um, when we see people from every tribe and tongue and nation, a great multitude whom no one could number, gathered around Jesus, worshiping it together. So, so this idea that, that racial and ethnic diversity and, and especially love across racial and ethnic difference, which is one of the things we see in the parable of the Good Samaritan, the idea that that is somehow a sort of modern secular progressive notion is completely at odds with actually the, the sort of history, history of ideas. Yeah. Um, and I think that's one of the things that we Christians need to internalize because after honestly, after centuries of kind of Western European art depicting Jesus as kind of a white guy and, you know, every biblical character basically is as white. We've kind of got into our heads consciously or otherwise that Christianity is, you know, the Bible is basically a, a text written by white people, called white people, and that, you know, maybe others have been included at a later point. But actually, if we open the Bible itself, we see black and brown people all throughout and, and we see people from you know, all sorts of different racial and, and cultural backgrounds um, all gathered together around the living God. Yeah, no, it's, I, Rebecca, I love the sweeping nature of your description of that in terms of the scope from the beginning to the end, the, the handiwork of God in his value and the diversity of his creation. And uh, it's such a beautiful thing for us to behold as well as for us to recognize, because you're right, our modern framework of our understanding of Christianity is, is displaced from the actuality of our roots. I want to remind people, um, just kind of pause right here to feel free to throw in some questions. Had a couple of questions come in uh, during the Q&A already, but throw us in, out some questions in the Q&A. We'd love to get to some of those a little later. If you want to make it interactive, have a comment or an amen, um, even a pushback or disagreement, you can put that in the, the chat feature. Um, as well. Okay, well, I want to get this quote right because I love this. You quote an anthropologist as saying, we must abandon this absurd idea that Christianity is a Western religion. Mm. Back that up. Yeah, that's my friend uh, Kanate Chofi, who's um, Indian, uh, in, in, as in, in India, mm -hmm. um, and part, interestingly, of, of a, a racial group. Um, there's a sort of tribal region in the north of India, which is predominantly Christian, unlike much of the rest of India. Um, and so it, a number of the Christians, the Christian scholars I know in India are actually from that group and they face sort of um, both racial and religious discrimination actually from, from those around them. Um, yeah, so we've seen from, from the, the biblical texts that Christianity is not a, a Western religion in the sense of any kind of exclusive claim that the West can make on it. Um, I think we also see that if, if we look historically, um, and we absolutely see that if we look at the contemporary global church. Um, so one thing I would sometimes like to say is that if, if saying that Christianity is, is Western is a bit like saying literacy is Western. I love that analogy. Um, yeah, because you, you think, 
so so what are the ways and what are the kind of um, comparisons there? Well, um, it's it, it's not the case that literacy was first developed in in Europe. It's actually not the case at all. So just like Christianity, which didn't didn't first develop in Europe, but then in the Middle East, literacy wasn't first developed in Europe. Um, it, it's not the case that most literate people today right. are Westerners, actually, and nor is it the case that most Christians today are Westerners. Mm -hmm. Now, it, it is true that for uh, centuries, Christianity kind of had a monopoly on Western culture, at least, uh, you know, I'm not saying it was properly, fully um, Christian, but that uh, there, there weren't major sort of religious or ideological kind of competitors to Christianity in Western Europe. And so there are a lot of, um, a lot of uh, artifacts that have come out of, of the West um, that have been influenced by Christianity. But while Christianity had a monopoly on Western Europe, Western Europe did not, not have a monopoly on Christianity any more than it had a monopoly on, on literacy. And, and whereas it's even true that um, Westerners have at times imposed literacy on, on people in, in non-literate cultures, um, sometimes to the detriment of those cultures and sometimes actually helped to preserve those cultures. Uh, it's also true that at times Westerners have um, sought to bring Christianity to uh, people in, in cultures um, where Christianity hasn't, um, hasn't been you know, a, a big part of their history. Um, but, but nobody in their right mind would say that, that literary, literacy was a sort of intrinsically Western thing and that anyone who was literate and not Western was kind of only so by appropriation. Um, and, and likewise with Christianity, it's sort of, ironically, it's a very kind of white western centric view of the world to say that Christianity is associated with being white and western um, and that's true whether we look in the US or whether we look globally so um, globally Christianity is is the most diverse belief system in the world hands down it's also the largest but it's the most diverse with a, a roughly even number of Christians um, in Europe in, in North America um, in Africa and a grow rapidly growing church in China um, and, and, and South America is sort of massive Christian growth there as well. Um, experts think that by 2060, 40% of the Christians in the world, the people in the world who identify as Christian will be living in sub-Saharan Africa. Wow. Uh, so the, the center of gravity of Christianity isn't in the West and it's kind of becoming less and less so. Um, I think by 2025, experts think there'll be more Christians in China than in America, for example. Right, which is remarkable. Um, so, so globally, Christianity is, is again, the, the most uh, racially, ethnically, culturally, and geographically diverse belief system. Um, and, and in the US as well, uh, whereas people will, will often kind of associate Christianity with, with being a white man, actually black women are the most likely to be Christians, yeah. both in the US and globally, in, in fact. Um, and the, the proportion, you know, if, if, when black Americans are polled versus white Americans, um, black Americans are about 10 percentage points more likely to identify as Christian. And, um, you know, whereas uh, a third of white Americans say they go to church every week, um, nearly half of black Americans do. Uh, so there's actually uh, people who, who, who really, and this is true of many of my non-Christian friends, who really believe in racial and ethnic diversity, then they believe, they, they sort of see the beauty of love across racial difference. Yeah. They end up dismissing Christianity because they associate it just with the ways in which white Christians historically and today have failed to live up to, Christians, uh, to Christian ethics. Yeah. Um, and, and 
one of the things that I would love to see happen is for people to actually listen more, uh, both Christians and non-Christians actually listen more to the the voices and the faith of uh, the, the millions of black believers in this country. One of the one of the things we, I mean, Peachtree hails from a Presbyterian background, which obviously, you know, Scottish roots, John Calvin in Switzerland and kind of migrating over this way. But don't realize that today there's more Presbyterians in Ghana than there are in the mm. U.S. Yeah. And there's more Presbyterians in Brazil than there are in the United States. So just mm -hmm. even if you're taking like the Presbyterian family, right. uh, there's more Presbyterians in Mexico than there yeah. are in the United States. It's staggering to consider um, the scope of that. And it's not kind of our perception. So I want people to kind of follow the logic of what you've been doing. You know, um, you've been talking about how, um, you know, the idea of the value of diversity and creation is not a, just a modern progressive idea. It goes way back that the origin of our faith and the church is birthed in the midst of that value. Um, and we see that lived out in the story of the Old Testament and the New Testament, and that the reality of the church and the Christian movement today, disciples of Jesus are more likely to be um, diverse than any other, any other religion. So, so if that's Christianity's story, how does that compare, for example, to other religions? Like, is that, is that just true of all religions or is that unique to Christianity? Like say, compare it to like Hinduism or something yeah. along those lines, yeah. like an Eastern yeah. religion. Yeah, and just before I answer that, I do want to be clear. I, I never want to say that to sort of whitewash, to use a sort of loaded term, yeah. uh, or, or to, to sort of sweep under the, the carpet the ways in which Christians have dramatically failed to live up to what the Bible calls us to here. Uh, and I, I think, I mean, the, the, the reality that the black church was birthed out of white Christian rejection of black believers um, and the, the, you know, the history of slavery and segregation and all the ways in which um, there's just a, a, a real and tragic stain of, of, of sin um, that has, has caused this perception among um you know, among many of many of our friends who dismiss Christianity is something that I think we need to grapple with and sort of hold, hold in our minds alongside the fact that this is not something that's come to us from the Bible, quite the reverse. Um, and that we, that I think there needs to be a real repent, like a, I think for us to move forward, folks like myself need to um, take real stock and, and engage in real repentance. Yes. Um, now to, to move on to the question about other religions, yeah, I do think Christianity is remarkable. So, I mean, you mentioned Hinduism. Hinduism is would be the, the biggest counterexample in that the vast, the overwhelming majority of, of folks who would identify as Hindus um, either live or, or come, uh, their families come from India, um, Nepal would be another, like the sort of couple of smaller countries that would be predominantly Hindu, but um, India is very much the, the homeland of, of Hinduism. Um, and actually quite quite a strong sort of Hindu nationalism um, in, in India at the moment that's um, troubling. I think people sometimes perceive any Eastern sort of quote Eastern religion as, as necessarily sort of peaceful versus the the nationalistic tendencies that Christians can sometimes have and that misses um, you know much of the narrative there. Um, yeah Islam obviously you know like Christianity uh, a missional religion um, right. Though, though with rather different sort of tactics often historically, um, but, but still far less sort of racial and cultural diversity. Um, you know, many Muslims in, in the north of Africa, for sure. 
and certainly in um, you know parts of the Middle East. Um, but you know, few, for example, in you know South America or um, right. you know, few. Um, yeah, and, and and obviously, I mean, there's there's so much complexity, and we look at the terrible things that are happening to um, ethnic Uyghurs in in China at the moment, who are being persecuted, you know, as as Muslims. Um, we look at the the ways in which Buddhist Buddhist nationalists right. um, have persecuted um, Rohingya Muslims as well. Like that, there's so much kind of com complexity there, um, and that some often. Uh, different religions are not conforming to people's sort of mental stereotypes of who might be persecuting whom <laughs> at, yeah. any, at any given time. Um, but Christianity, yeah, for, you know, for all our faults, it, just in terms of sheer diversity, absolutely, um, you know, wins out over any other religion. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to shift gears to kind of take some of the questions. And one of the questions that's come in um, kind of circles back to the repentance idea that you talked mm -hmm. about that um, so this person says, it seems right that across Christianity, things are pretty diverse, but as Martin Luther King said, and Atlanta being the hometown for Martin Luther King Jr., the most segregated hour in America is Sunday morning at 11 a.m. Uh, for, for those of us for whom that's a, a heartbreak, um, and particularly because you come from, uh, not from the U.S., but have a little bit of an outsider's perspective, any, any wisdom or challenge for the American church today in the midst of the reality of that there's diversity in a macro sense, but not necessarily in a local community in the church. Yeah, I mean, so much to say there. And I feel like uh, being an outsider is in some sense a virtue and in some sense a, a curse because there, there are some things that I, you know, I'll see with different eyes and other things that I'll completely fail to see because I didn't mm -hmm. grow up here and I, you know, I miss things that might be obvious even to a sort of standard issue white women of my age um, who'd grown up in America. So I always want to be a little kind of careful I think um, I, it's easy to become very disheartened by um, the, the ways in, in which uh, it, it, there continues to be a, a lack of, of trust and, and I think a legitimate deep disappointment um, from our black brothers and sisters uh, in terms of how white Christians have, have treated them or allowed them to be treated. Um, and then we see that in all sorts of domains. Uh, and I think a big part of what I've been trying to do even particularly this year is just listen more and try to learn and understand more and not kind of assume that I, I have the answers myself. Um, I think it was talking with um, a guy named Esau McCarley, who some folks may be familiar with, who wrote a really wonderful book called Reading While Black. Um, uh, African-American exegesis as an exercise in hope that just came out last month and he also has been writing for the New York Times Extraordinary Guy, he's a, um, a black professor of New Testament studies at, at Wheaton and, and he had this really helpful <clears throat> uh, analogy for me where he said if two people are in a marriage and one of them has committed adultery in order for that marriage to have a chance of, of moving forward and, and actually kind of healing and becoming something something new the person who's committed adultery must speak truth about that. They can't just say, oh, well, you know, let's just move on. They, they actually, they must speak truth about it for there to be any a rebuilding of trust and, and hope and a forward motion. Um, and, and I found that really helpful in terms of understanding you know, the relationship between uh, even, even sort of you know, well-meaning well white, white Christian, uh, predominantly white Christian churches here and, and our, our black brothers and sisters 
um, that, that we do need to speak truth. But I think there's also a, a kind of hopefulness there to say, um, actually, there, there, is a, there is a vision for, for a future healthy marriage, um, a future like deeply healthy, loving relationships between Christians um, of all different um, racial and uh, cultural heritages within this country. Um, and I think one of the things which I'm continuing to process again as a white Christian in America is that whereas repentance can feel like a step back, it's actually really a step forward. It's a step forward both in terms of um, our discipleship and actually in terms of our evangelism. Um, and sometimes I think because we see progressives calling on Christians to repent of uh, racial injustice and to and sort of package various other things with that that Christians can't affirm that we sort of feel like you know repentance is, is taking a step back or kind of yielding to a progressive agenda actually I think as we look at the scriptures uh, it, it, we're, we're kneeling to Jesus not to any progressive agenda when we right. repent of, of the sort of historic sense of, of racism and and that um, it actually will will give us a hopeful future um, if, if we're able to do that effectively. So let me move from one charged topic to another. Let's talk about Islam. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned earlier that, um, that in the first, kind of in the first broadcast and in your book, you talk about how in reality, the, the, the global expansion of religious um, kind of movements is particularly in Christianity and in Islam. And so while there are some similarities, monotheistic, you know, kind of some, some of those dimensions, there are um, a lot of cultural dif differences in terms of um, what is the religion's view of culture. So when it comes to issues like diversity, how is Islam different from Christianity and its treatment of culture? Yeah. In five minutes or less. Yeah, no, certainly. I mean, the, or you could teach the whole course on the subject. I don't. Know. I, 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 I'm not qualified to teach any uh, any kind of course on the subject, but I, I give you some thoughts. Um, one is even before we kind of get to that, that I think it's really important for us to to understand that, that there are very um, people can be Muslims and have very different kinds of sort of ways of thinking and and, and being in the world. And I think often, sure. um, you know, for, for folks who who haven't. Um, Encounter like got got to know many uh, actual Muslims. Uh, it can be easy for people's first go-to to be like, okay, Muslims terrorists, like Muslims right. military might uh, threat, etc. Um, and whereas it is absolutely true, and I, and I don't think it's right to say that there is you know there's no legitimate connection between the teachings of Islam and um, you know some of the terrorist acts that, that we've seen. I think you know that, that there is a legitimate connection there. At the same time. Um, I have never met a Muslim person who has not actually been a like a really delightful um, person. I'm, I predominantly know Muslim women, um, you know, who are other mums at the schools that my the school that my kids go to, um, and who actually, rather than feeling any kind of hostility towards me as a Christian, they, they sort of there's a certain e there's an eagerness to um, to sort of have a camaraderie between us, you know, people who believe in God and, and have this sort of shared way yes. of thinking it, it, on, on many topics um, against what, what they can feel as a bit of an, a kind of oppressive sort of secularism. I'm speaking in Cambridge and sort of Northeast here, so uh, may have a different cultural resonance there. 
Um, so I think understanding you know, that we shouldn't map uh, even sort of particular acts of, of uh, Islamic folk onto individual Muslims we we might meet here and now. Um, but I think I think culturally there are some interesting differences even in terms of um, how the scriptures are perceived. So so Muslims, um, whereas Muslims you know will at times read the Quran in translation, it's really not meant to be. It, it's it's meant to be in Arabic and it's meant like it's, there's a a real sort of sensitivity to that. Whereas the Bible itself is a mishmash of different languages. Right. <laughs> you know, we've yeah. got Hebrew, we've got Greek, we also, you know, the times when Jesus speaks Aramaic, we have little snaps of Latin. It, I, I love the fact that the Bible is sort of, it, it's, it's multicultural in its very fabric, actually. Mm -hmm. um, and there is no problem with translating the Bible. I mean, obviously there are all sorts of like practical challenges in translating anything, but, but there is absolutely a, like a, a strong drive to translate the Bible into all sorts of different languages uh, and for it not to be something that uh, eradicates cultural difference, right? but right. actually, um, you know, as it, it gives us opportunities for love across cultural difference. My, my wife is the Islam spect kind of uh, expert in the house because it was a part of her minor in, in college. And I got to know an imam in New Jersey when I was a, a pastor there right after 9-11. We'd actually just struck up a friendship before and yeah, continued yeah. what you know after after 9/11 there and it was it was interesting to the first part of what you were talking about as a conservative christian he said from a values perspective standing against the licentiousness and the craziness of culture made us very strange bedfellows like that right. that we were partnered against the permissiveness of greed and sexual immorality and uh uh, all of the things that are boundaryless, kind of, kind of in our culture today, and it was, I was surprised at how much of there of a partnership there was in that. I was also surprised in the difference in, um, at, uh, just in the sense of when I had conversations, a very different view of culture mm -hmm. than than the Christian view, um, and and I think that's true in its origin. I don't think I'm painting with too broad of a brush just to say in general that Islam's view of culture is different from Christianity's view of, of culture. And that kind of assumption has a huge impact mm -hmm. on the way that we live out our faith in community and mm -hmm. deal with issues like diversity, just as you've highlighted with even just the understanding of our sacred texts. Well, Rebecca, this is a fantastic conversation and I'm sure we could go on for a long time, but uh, thank you for your wisdom and your thoughtfulness. Uh, on this subject. I want to thank everybody for chiming in, even for the questions that we didn't get to. I want to say a shout out for everybody who's watching our Right Now Media after the fact. Thanks for joining us and look forward to, uh, to next week and what we're going to get to explore in this great series on confronting Christianity. Rebecca, thanks again and God bless everybody. Thanks, Rich.